three, two, hey, we're live. Welcome to the gray zone. It's just the gray zone. We don't have a, other, any other brand. Everybody knows what the gray zone's about. We're bringing you real experts, people who actually have been, have, have actually seen war, who know what, the, what war is really about and who might offer a different analysis of the war that we're seeing in Ukraine than the cast of neocon chicken hawks and beltway hacks that you are seeing on corporate media. We have a really special guest today, Colonel Doug McGregor, and I'm here with my colleague, Aaron Mate, uh, who has previously interviewed Colonel McGregor on his show, Pushback, but this is live, and I think we're gonna get a really candid assessment of uh, how uh, Colonel McGregor sees the war and also of his own experience uh, being inside the room, being um, in the Trump administration's Pentagon, working on really important initiatives like an attempt at the Afghan withdrawal and many other issues and maybe even some of your questions. Uh, make sure to hit the like button. You could even smash the like button if you want, but that's probably not necessary. Um, but, you know, help us break out of the algorithm, out of algorithmic suppression. Uh, colonel Doug McGregor is a retired U.S. Army colonel and government official. And you might have seen him recently on Fox News, basically uh, breaking through the wall of uh, breaking through the official narrative and making some people in Washington very angry with too many facts. Uh, he was, Doug, Douglas McGregor was proposed as U.S. ambassador to Germany and his nomination was blocked, I think for that very reason, uh, blocked by the Senate. We'll talk about the Senate in, the se in a second. And in November, 2020, he was appointed uh, senior advisor to the acting secretary of defense um, towards the end of the administration. And now here we are in a very momentous time uh, welcome, Colonel McGregor, to the Gray Zone. Good to be with you. Great. Um, let's talk about your latest piece just to open. Um, you ask, is there a path to peace in Ukraine? And I actually wanted to bring up video of Jen Psaki, but I don't have it ready. I'm going to throw up your piece on the screen really fast so everyone can find it. But the, the um, exchange that Jen Psaki had really illustrated a point that you make in this piece in the American conservative. Um, and you're arguing that Biden should help negotiate a ceasefire. It would save countless Ukrainian lives um, as well as lives in the Donbass where we saw a brutal air, um, ballistic missile strike yesterday, but his words and actions have thus far rendered, rendered this practically impossible. Jen Psaki, the press secretary was asked by a reporter, wouldn't it be better to start negotiating and de-escalating? to save Ukrainians instead of instilling them with the false hope that they can win, that they can actually uh, defeat Russia and flooding them with weapons. And Saki said, basically, no, we're just going to keep giving them weapons and we've destroyed the Russian economy. So the war continues. Is peace possible? And why is Biden seemingly so hostile to negotiating and de-escalating? Well, at this point, I think we have to conclude that there is a universal opposition to any peace uh, arrangement that involves uh, a recognition of any Russian 
success. Uh, in fact, if anything, it looks more and more as though Ukrainians are almost incidental to the operation in the sense that they are there to impale themselves on the Russian army and uh, die in great numbers because the real goal of this entire thing is the destruction of the Russian state and Vladimir Putin. And no one is prepared to stop anything as long as there is the slightest hope that something terrible will happen to Russia and to Putin. Of course, I don't see much evidence that that's going to be the case, but it doesn't really matter here. Uh, everyone has universally signed on for the Russian hate campaign or hatred for Russia campaign. And that seems to go on regardless of uh, what is reported. And, and frankly, the absence of much truth in reporting and, and a lot of wishful thinking in its place is hard to uh, overestimate or exaggerate. It's terrible. What do you make so far of the dominant narrative we're getting here in the U.S. that militarily that this has been a disaster for Russia? that Ukraine is putting up fierce resistance that Putin mm -hmm. did not expect and has inflicted serious military defeat on the Russian invaders. Well, as to the last point, it's very obvious that what Ukrainian forces are still active are entirely surrounded, cut off, and isolated in various towns and cities. Uh, the Ukrainian forces are incapable of anything but an occasional pinprick attack on, on something that doesn't appear to be very robust or dangerous. So the war, for all intents and purposes, has been decided. The, the issue for the Russians from the very beginning has been, how do we proceed without killing large numbers of civilians and inflicting a lot of property damage? And Putin gave very strict orders from the outset that they were to avoid these things. The problem with avoiding it is that it has slowed the progress of the operation to the point where it has given false hope both to the Ukrainians but I think has been seized on by people in the West to try and convince the world that a defeat is in progress when in fact the opposite is the case. So the, the war itself at this stage of the game could be decided very, very rapidly, uh, permanently, if Putin were to give the order and allow the forces to disregard the concern for civilians and property damage, but he hasn't done that. He has continued to negotiate, even though he recognizes that the people sitting across from him really are not in a position to deliver very much. They're being told what to do. And it's very obvious that Washington wants this to continue as long as possible in the hopes that uh, Russia will be desperately harmed. Uh, I just don't see that happening. The, this morning, the latest polling data was given to me from uh, Eastern Poland about Russia, and 70% of the Russian population is firmly behind Vladimir Putin. Uh, that's a very large percentage in any conflict for any president to enjoy. And that's His up almost 10%. Allegedly lost 2,000 dead. Uh, I have no way of confirming that. Nobody else does. That may well be the case, but out of 200,000 forces, 200,000 troops, that's a re not an unreasonable amount for three weeks of fighting. The thousands of Ukrainians who've been killed, soldiers, is anyone's guess because obviously Kiev isn't going to report that honestly. We're going to get inflated figure figures for their opponents and untrue figures for themselves. So I think the big problem right now is that in the West, there is no truth. There is wishful thinking and there is this impression of success by the Ukrainians that 
doesn't stack up. In fact, the Russians are capturing large quantities of Western equipment, British and American, that are being shipped to them at this point. Yeah, we have a map uh, from South Front, which I think might be more accurate than the Kagan's think tank, the Institute for the Study of War. Yeah. Uh, right to your left, I'm not sure if you see it on screen, but yes. as you see the red uh, marks Russian pos Russian positions, the Russian incursion. And if you look to the to the north of Ukraine, just north of Kiev, you can see Russia forming positions around Kiev and essentially encircling, it, it, that's my view, encircling divisions of the Ukrainian military. And then in the, in the east, there's a rapid advance, not only of Russian forces, but forces from Lugansk and Donetsk who are uh, technically, according to the U.S., Ukrainian. And you can see pockets there, which I would call cauldrons. Um, you know, can you can you give us an assessment based on what you see of this map uh, as of March 14th? Well, on the southeastern side towards the bottom, you have as many as 60,000 Ukrainian troops that are completely surrounded in what the Russians are referring to as a cauldron. Uh, that's been going on for several days now. No one knows what the status of those forces is. Uh, they're probably running out of water, supplies, ammunition. Uh, the Russians would prefer that they surrender. Some have, but uh, there may be pressure now to end this, which would result in the mass slaughter of some 60,000 troops. And I don't think the Russians are interested in that. I think what the Russians are interested in is what you see. They've gone to the large population centers. They've tried to avoid the center, the central portion of Ukraine, because that's the agricultural area. In fact, Russian troops have been told to stay out of the fields. Uh, the Russians realize that we're on the verge of spring planting in Ukraine. They're not interested in destroying the wheat and barley crops at all. They would prefer to see that go ahead. So the issue for the Russians right now is that everything worth controlling is controlled. Uh, this notion that you hear over and over and over again on television, well, they're, they haven't increased their territorial control. They're not interested in territory. The entire operation from day one was focused on the destruction of Ukrainian forces. That's largely complete with the exception of those that are still surrounded. They've got a huge problem in Mariupol, which is off to the right, where you have roughly 3,000 of these fanatical fighters in the Azov Regiment or Battalion, whatever you want to call it, who are refusing to allow any of the civilians in the city to leave. In fact, I saw footage this morning of, of these Ukrainian Azov troops telling uh, the, the population there, you can't leave, even though the Russians had opened a corridor for humanitarian assistance and evacuation. Again, these things are not reported in the West because it tends to damage the narrative. So my great concern is the determination to annihilate the Azov crowd could result in real destruction in Mariupol, which would be terrible for the people there. But again, one doesn't know what the thinking is at higher levels. I suspect there's a desire to end this, get this over with. But as long as Zelensky stalls, the more Ukrainian forces will be killed. And it doesn't make any difference how much we try to ship into Ukraine. They can't assimilate it and use it effectively in any case at this point. But again, this satisfies the narrative that the Russians are losing. Putin is evil and must be driven out, and he's the aggressor. Uh, all of the information going back to 2014 and earlier is essentially deleted from the discussion. The fact that they've lost 14,000 people killed in the war since 2014, that the Ukrainians have waged relentlessly against the Russians in the East, that's ignored. So I, it's, it's very tragic, but 
I think what will happen is the truth will out. Eventually, this will end. The Russians will be successful in what they've set out to do, and the Ukrainians will be destroyed. Uh, I, I'd rather not see that. I don't think Putin wants to see that. Remember, he's fighting against people that he largely considers to be very much like himself. There is no desire to murder all of these people, contrary to popular belief. The biggest lie I've heard repeated on television is Russian troops have been told to deliberately murder civilians, Ukrainian civilians. It's absurd. It's nonsense. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do they make mistakes? Do munitions fall on things they'd rather not? Of course, we make those mistakes. Every military organization does. But it is as ridiculous to assert that the Russians are deliberately murdering civilians as it was to assert when we were in Vietnam or then subsequently involved in other wars in the Middle East that we were deliberately murdering civilians. We were not. Uh, we didn't always tell the truth about it. In the sense, when we made mistakes, we tried to dress it up. But the truth is, we never set out to do those things. I don't see any evidence that they are doing it either. If they were, this would have been over 10 days ago. I would take issue with the idea that we weren't setting out to deliberately kill civilians. I'm reminded of Henry Kissinger saying in Cambodia, anything that flies on anything that moves. I mean, that was essentially a call for genocide. Aaron, uh, you can fight that war with somebody else. I'm telling right, you, that as a soldier in the United States Army, and my experience with people in those forces, they don't deliberately murder civilians. Okay, we can have that discussion another time. Let me ask you, on the question of uh, the U.S. arming Ukraine, you have people right now like Amy Klobuchar, Rob Portman, they're in Poland. They're saying that if we can get those jets from Poland to Ukraine, that that can make a difference. Can you address that argument and this widespread notion in Washington that if more weapons could be sent to Ukraine, that that could turn the tide in Ukraine's favor? Well, obviously, it's not going to turn any tide whatsoever. It does seem as though many people on the Hill, obviously responding to their donors, want to widen and escalate the war on the assumption that somehow or another uh, the Russians are weak, that Mr. Putin is sitting on a wobbly throne, uh, all that sort of business. It's not true. Uh, and if we actually intervene against Russian forces on the ground in, in eastern Ukraine in any meaningful way, we will end up at war with Russia. And that war will escalate horizontally as well as vertically. So that up to and including the use of nuclear weapons. Remember, nuclear weapons only have value in the, in the modern world in terms of their potential to protect your territorial integrity. That's it. The use of a nuclear weapon in any other situation is so destructive uh, that no one sees any military utility to it. And no one wants to use it because it would have horrific consequences on the ground for anybody who's near it. And keep in mind that uh, if we were to use a nuclear weapon or the, or the so or Russians were, you would end up with the prevailing winds blowing the fallout across Central Asia into uh, Northeast China, Korea, uh, and uh, Japan. The whole idea is insane. However, we have been flying B-52s very close to Russian airspace. We've moved our submarines close to them. Uh, they have detected this presence. They have no idea whether the aircraft are carrying nuclear weapons or conventional weapons. They have no way of knowing what the submarines may or may not use. And as a result, they've gone to this alert, high nuclear alert, which is very dangerous. And their detection capability, in other words, the ability of their radars and their satellites to detect launches from us uh, is not nearly as good as ours. They are behind in that area, which means that 
you may end up with some people that report that a launch is imminent or they are under attack by someone with a nuclear weapon when it's not. So there is room for serious mistakes there. But no one should doubt the willingness if they feel that their territory is going to be threatened with a, an attack with nuclear weapons, they will launch a strike against us. And that will bring the war to North America, to the United States. Aaron mentioned, uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, that there was discussion or put a, a push in Washington to deliver MiG-29 MiG fighters to Ukraine, I guess, so the ghost of Kiev can get up there and continue knocking down dozens and dozens of Russian right. jets. Um, seemingly fantastical. Nancy Pelosi, in her um, rambling discussion of the war yesterday, I, I kind of am tempted to play video of it, where she fantasized about taking out the Russian convoy, wished for the MiG-29 delivery from Poland, and said the U.S. would backfill it. And this is obviously because you know Ukrainian pilots are trained to fly those and not U.S. aircraft, et cetera. Um, but it seems like such an insane plan that even Biden opposed it. And so well, first of all, let's let's give credit where credit's due, Max. Yeah. The president of the United States has made some very good decisions. He's made it very clear. Number one, we will not send any ground forces into Ukraine. Remember, there was some discussion at the beginning of whether or not our forces or troops would go into Ukraine to rescue American citizens. Right. Absolutely not. We will not go into Ukraine under any circumstances on the ground. Then when the new no fly zone was raised, it's perfectly obvious that if you send any NATO aircraft into Ukrainian airspace, the Russians are going to shoot them down, in right. which case you're at war with Russia. He said, absolutely not. So then they came up with the third scheme. And this was, of course, Anthony Blinken, who kept pushing for this uh, on the assumption that, well, we shouldn't be afraid of Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin won't respond. I listened to S uh, Senator Lindsey Graham a man with infinite military experience as a, an attorney serving in the staff judge advocates corps, advocates corps on military duty in places like Iraq. And he certainly understands that no matter what we do, Mr. Putin won't respond. Mr. Putin is intimidated by us and we can do what, pretty much what we want. This, this is a huge problem. For the first time, certainly in living memory, I heard Senator Rubio actually say something yesterday that I thought was exceptionally intelligent. And he, he announced to everyone, Russia is not Iraq. Gosh, what an insight. Russia is not Iraq. And therefore, he said, no, we can't do the no-fly zone and we can't transfer those MiGs. So there is some evidence for rationality in the Senate. But unfortunately, uh, people like Graham continue to argue. You've got Mr. Blinken, who is has some rather strange ideas about what the Russians will or won't do. Uh, he's going to continue to push for dumb ideas. The, the key question is, can President Biden retain his presence of mind and continue to say no to these dumb ideas? I don't know. Uh, I hope so. So I, I, I credit him with common sense on that uh, level. And I think he's letting the people on the Hill say and do otherwise what they want because he knows they're answering to donors. I mean, we don't right. we don't care about the people that elect us to office anymore. Uh, they're irrelevant. Donors are everything. Donors run the city. 
So they're responding to donors who obviously want to find ways to widen and escalate the conflict. But I don't think the president does, and he will stop it any opportunity he has to do so. Well, it sounds like, and this this goes directly to my question, it sounds like you're identifying a particular faction in the Biden administration that wants to escalate this war, that is the real war party, and you're locating them in the State Department, um, you know, based on your own experience in an administration, um, I know that the neo, the kind of neoconservative and more hardline elements were, um, they were, you know, not elevated the way they are in the Biden administration. But, you know, can you just address the, maybe the tension between the State Department, particularly the Blinken State Department and the Pentagon, which seemed opposed to this MiG-29 transfer idea? Uh, the Department of Defense, at least on the uniform side, is dominated by people uh, who, for the most part, don't want to have to fight a real war against a real enemy that can fight back. <laughs> they know that we're not prepared for that. They know that our forces are woefully unprepared, untrained, and ill-equipped. They know this because they've had a hand in creating the mess that we have today inside the Department of Defense. So someone like General Mark Milley, will advise under no circumstances, provoke the Russians under no circumstances, drag us into this. We are not ready. Uh, that much is clear. The, the problem is there are other hotheads and, and I think it's a mistake to talk exclusively about the administration. I think we need to understand that this really is the uniparty. Uh, Democrat versus Republican labels are irrelevant. They're all responding to the same collection of donors. The donors want conflict. The donors enjoy conflict, enrich themselves as a result of conflict, and the donors grossly underestimate the dangers because the donors have no real experience on the ground in the military. They don't know what they're dealing with. I read a number of reports that were given by former soldiers in the United States Army, Special Operations Forces, and Marines who have since been to Ukraine and come back, and they recorded with horror what it was like to fight against the Russians and said, don't come over here. If you do, you're going to get killed. This is a real army. This is real high-intensity conventional warfare. Forget it. Our experience is irrelevant, and they're right. Uh, people that were able to essentially do whatever they want because we dominated people in Iraq and Afghanistan with overwhelming firepower, people that had no armies, no air forces, no air defenses, uh, they, they know that this will not work. Problem is that that's irrelevant to the people on the Hill. They, they are, again, performing for donors. And sadly, there are people out there in the United States. I call it the Bombs Away Club. There are people in the Bombs Away Club who are always prepared to bomb anybody and attack anybody. They think this is some manifestation of our greatness. And then you have the, the preoccupation with bullying everyone. The State Department is accustomed to bullying others bullying them into acceptance of whatever policy stance we want them to take. I think that's going to end as a result of this conflict, because over time, many of the Europeans have now realized with the Indians, the Chinese, most Asians have figured out, most of Africa and Latin America, that we are bullies, that, that we inevitably end up in a position where if you don't agree with us, we brand you as the enemy and we try to punish you with control of our financial system. I think that's going to end. Uh, I don't see 
this ending badly necessarily for Russia. Russia is going to be hurt. Anytime you fight any war, you were hurt. Look at us during the Second World War. How long did it take us to recover from that war? And it was not easy. But the point is, they will come out of it. And the Chinese, thanks to Jake Sullivan, who met with the foreign minister in Rome, have, have seen the wisdom of reaffirming their support for Russia now because he went in and essentially threatened the Chinese. We're, our instantaneous response to anyone who doesn't agree is to threaten. We don't practice something the British Empire used to practice, at least until World War I, which was economy of enemies. We go in and say, you're with us or you're against us. Whereas the British usually went into some place and said, well, who can we work with? And who is neutral? And who can we bring on side? And who can who is the real problem? Perhaps we can isolate that individual or those people. We don't think in those terms. And this is part of the moral hypocrisy, but it comes with the globalist, Marxist, elitist mentality. Uh, we have a monopoly, they think, on, uh, on wisdom, uh, morality, decency, and anyone who opposes them is, of course, the opposite. Our Marxist uh, fans are going to take issue with that one. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, lo I love the idea, uh, and I'll hand off the baton to Aaron, but I just wanted to say I love the idea of the guy who ran Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign trying to establish a cleavage between Russia and China, uh, referring to Jake Sullivan. Uh, but Aaron, go ahead. Well, let me ask you about the speculation and allegations that have been hurled in recent days about biolabs and chemical weapons, false flag plots. Uh, first, you had Victoria Nuland under questioning by Marco Rubio in the Senate last week, asked directly if Ukraine has chemical or biological weapons. She didn't give a direct answer. She did say that uh, Ukraine has biological facilities and she's concerned about Russia, those facilities falling into Russian hands, which raises the obvious question that if they're benign, then why is she concerned about Russia possessing them? And then right after that, we started to get these allegations coming out from both the U.S. and Russia that the other side is plotting false flag chemical attacks. I'm wondering what you make of all this. Well, usually the winning side does not stage a false flag. And right now the Russians are clearly winning on the battlefield. So I don't see any particular reason why they would stage a false flag. Uh, if anything, uh, the Ukrainians might be interested as a last-ditch last effort to drag us in. Uh, they could uh, certainly turn to the use of biochemicals if they can weaponize them and use them effectively, or if they've already done so, they could simply fire a missile that is of Russian origin and design into Poland and claim the Russians have done it. Uh, that is a possibility. We should be on the uh, alert for that sort of thing. I don't see the Russians doing that. They don't need it. Uh, if anything, the Russians just want to come to the table, get a signature on a ceasefire arrangement and see their terms met. And as far as I can tell, the terms have not changed very much, and they're very straightforward. Number one, Ukraine will be neutral and non-aligned with any bloc. Number two, uh, the Donbass region's de facto independence and, and Russian identity will be acknowledged by uh, Kiev or Kiev. And then finally, uh, the Ukrainians will renounce any claim on uh, Crimea, which, as we all know, this is an ahistorical claim. It's never been Ukrainian. Those have been the, the sort of standard three. Now, there are other things that they want to discuss, no doubt, and they want to be certain that future governments will not be incurably hostile to Moscow and host weapons and systems uh, designed to destroy Russia on their soil. That's clear. 
but I think uh, they go along with something on the model of the Austrian state treaty. Clearly, uh, Mr. Blinken, uh, Victoria Newland, and their cohorts, and I suspect Mr. Soros has also got his hand in this, are all stonewalling that till the last Ukrainian is dead, I guess. Uh, I hope not, but it certainly looks that way. And on the chemical weapons allegations, do you see a parallel here to Syria, a sort of recycling of the Syria playbook where the U.S. accused Syria and their Russian ally of committing chemical attacks of Syria with Russia's support. That was the allegation. When meanwhile, as we know from the reporting of Seymour Hirsch and also from OPCW leaks, that all the intelligence pointed to these chemical attacks either being carried out or staged by sectarian death squad rebels fighting the Syrian government. Well, there's a lot of evidence for that. There's also, I'm told, some evidence for the involvement of MI6, which is a very effective organization and very adept at this sort of business in Syria. Uh, they may once again be involved. Who knows? I mean, we all have intelligence services. All intelligence services are involved in these conflicts in one way or another. So I think if you go to Ted Postel's work, who's very good on this, as well as to British sources, and you will confirm what you just, just outlined. You're asking me what I know. And unfortunately, I don't know too much. What I know is what is open source. And I'm prepared uh, to believe any number of different possibilities. But I've said repeatedly, until someone gets in there who is not Ukrainian or Russian and looks at the evidence, we're probably not going to know with certainty what's really there. I found that uh, in the Balkans, when we were dealing with the Serbs and so many things they were accused of turned out to be false, that the Finns were enormously helpful. The Finns would go in and they were the truth tellers. We really need some truth tellers like that. But for the moment, that's not going to happen. So the worst thing that could happen is a false flag. We have to be prepared for that. And again, that's where the president of the United States plays such a critical role. Unfortunately, Mr. Trump was deceived on both occasions because his inner circle kept pushing him and pushing him to launch those missiles. And ultimately, uh, we did. They went into the dirt. They accomplished nothing. By the way, the Russians accommodated it. Uh, it's unfortunate, uh, but that's the way it went. But finally, in 2019, when Mr. Trump was ambushed, by people in his own administration and the military in an attempt to bring on a war with Iran uh, after the shootdown of the global hawk that was deliberately flying a path that everyone knew would be engaged, uh, he said no and ended that possibility, thank goodness. So I think it, it depends on the president and uh, whomever is uh, close to him to make the decision, no, we're not going to act if that in fact occurs. Yeah, I think uh, there there is a, a higher chance now of some kind of staged event or false flag than at any point because all of the other military options have been expended. I was actually in a debate on CGTN with one of the main kind of Ukrainian influencers who's a hardline parliamentarian, Ina Sovson. And when I heard her say, there, we are expecting a chemical attack, that's when I knew. And then I started to see this narrative get rolled out by all of the Biden proxies and the state to Newland proxies about biological weapons, false flag by Russia. It became clear they were preparing for something along with all the censorship and the attacks on Tucker Carlson for actually, because he would be the one person with a national audience to push back on another Duma style incident. So it really does feel like uh, all the signals are blinking red as uh 
Mitt Romney's uh, former advisor, Kofor Black, who went on to work for Burisma, said days before 9-11. Now, if you want to add anything to that, feel free. But I wanted to ask you about another issue. Uh, There was a a, uh, cruise missile attack on the Yaroviv base, which is just east of Poland, inside Ukrainian territory. And it's known as this kind of international peacekeeping center. Um, center. It was home to mercenaries and redditors who were coming uh, because they were bored with their lives as computer programmers to participate in a war they thought was going very well for Ukraine. Let me just throw up on screen some of the testimony from one of the people who was a witness to that attack, uh, who was a U.S. uh, medic who wanted to be a combat medic. And, you know, this is from one of the Reddit chats. You weren't expecting missiles at a war, No, just not at that base at that particular time. Shit surprised us, including the Ukrainians. And then he gets called an idiot. Uh, And then he refers to the volunteers who have come in from around the country as cannon fodder, Um, you know, basically being bodies shoveled in front of the Russians. He called the Ukrainian commanders crazy um, and so on. And and then they all turned tail and ran home. At least 35 foreigners are dead. It could be as many as 200, but that seems to be the end of the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. But my question is not only about that, but about this wider issue of that base being there and having hosted many NATO training sessions. uh, Could there have even been NATO trainers who were hit in that attack? And can you address this... um, concept of the NATOization of Ukraine. I mean, most Americans think Ukraine has not been formally admitted into NATO. However, we hear from the Russian side that it effectively has been NATOized. What do you know about this base? And what about this wider concept of NATOization? Well, the NATOization has occurred. And this is one of the reasons why when people say the probability that Ukraine would be admitted to NATO was always low for all the usual reasons the lack of human rights uh, standards, the lack of uh, true democratic elections, the overwhelming corruption and so forth. The problem with that is that the Russians have watched carefully at how rapidly we are willing to waive things in order to get new members into the alliance. And I think they concluded that regardless of what the true circumstances were, this NATOization had reached the point where if Russia did not Uh, firmly object and demonstrate its opposition that Ukraine would be admitted. So I think the NATOization argument is is very true. And that's one of the reasons we got large numbers of people out of there as quickly as possible when it became clear that the Russians were going to intervene. We didn't want hundreds of our advisors and so forth captured by the Russians. So yes, the place is NATOized. That's true. But NATOization is really U.S.-led. and, and we tend to drag other NATO's members with us. The British are there because they tend to be fellow travelers with us. And like us, they don't live on the continent. So if things really go badly, just like the, the United States, the British will simply go home to the island. This is why large numbers of Europeans dislike them intensely and don't trust them. So, yeah, that that's very much the case. Uh, there's something else, though, at work here. And that is that Putin wanted to demonstrate. I'm sure he gave permission for this strike because I don't think any operations west of the Dnieper happened without his authorization. Because I know that in the original thinking, there was no desire to press west beyond the Dnieper River. 
I mean, that, that's the heart of Ukraine. The people that live there really are Ukrainian in language, culture, and so forth. Doesn't want to go there. And I think what he did is he said, yes, we'll do this because we need to show these people that we can reach out and touch them anywhere in Ukraine. This happened to be very close to the Polish border, so it, it had a double message. It was a message to the Poles that if you continue to provide support to the Ukrainians, and if you try to widen and escalate this war, you too will become a co-belligerent. And the Ukraine and the West, uh, the, the Poles don't want that. They know that. Well, on this uh, topic of NATOization, let me ask you about the dimensions of this that go beyond Ukraine itself. I'm asking you to talk about for the last 20 years, the U.S. has been uh, continuously dismantling arms control treaties. The anti-ballistic missile treaty was dismantled in 2003. The conventional armed forces in Europe treaty expired in 2007. Putin, in his Munich speech, vocally protested that. And, you know, uh, countries like Romania and Poland have built these U.S. missile sites. The U.S. says that they're intended to protect Europe from Iranian missiles. I wonder if you can comment on that and the role that this this, uh, dismantling of arms control treaties, also the INF treaty, uh, which expired under your administration, under the Trump administration, how that's contributed to uh, Russia's uh, feelings of feeling encircled and how uh, what those developments played into Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Uh, I think all of those issues contributed to the buildup in the minds of Russians of the need to protect themselves. There's no question about that. I think the uh, decision on the INF treaty was a serious mistake. The Russians, frankly, were shocked by it. But there was a huge lobby, uh, all neocons on the inside of the administration as well as outside, who were trying to convince everyone that uh, arms control was a waste of time. Arms control protected us in no way. Arms control should be abandoned. Now, I'm the first to admit that arms control is difficult because if you see a violation by one side, or the other, you're very reluctant to admit it. Because if you tell the other side that you're aware of their violation, then you risk uh, revealing that you have the collection capability, that you have sources, maybe even human sources on the ground reporting to you. So you have to judge the violation very carefully and decide whether or not it is egregious enough to justify bringing it to the table. Now, I was not part of the INF talks at the time. But I was told by several people, you have to know, you have to understand they're not, they're not doing what they said they would do. And and we have to pull out of this. And I looked at the evidence that I could see and all of it seemed to point in the direction of Russian paranoia about our behavior. And you mentioned the uh, missile sites down in Romania, for instance, and I had suggested on one occasion you know, why don't we invite Russian officers to come over and, and view it? If we're absolutely convinced that this is all for the purpose of defending ourselves against a potential Iranian ballistic missile attack, then we should bring them in and let them look at it and satisfy themselves that this is no threat to Russia. Well, you can imagine the response that I elicited. Uh, I was told that I'd lost my mind and this was never going to happen, which leads me to believe that these things had very little to do with Iran and a great deal more to do with Russia. Again, you're always weighing as a great power the wisdom of doing something or not doing something on the assumption that what you do is going to have an effect on your potential opponent. Uh, I don't think we've done a good job of that. And I think we have too readily dismissed the potential adversary as too weak economically, 
and too backward in many ways to respond. That's not true. That has never been true. The difference in the size of the economy is real, but that does not reflect on the, on the Russian military or on the quality of its scientific and technological capabilities. So I think we put ourselves in this position. And we, we did so very, in my judgment, very cavalierly because we actually did have a long period of time where we had established a degree of mutual trust and cooperation. And all you have to do is look at the uh, space programs, look at the extent to which we purchased Russian rocket engines, uh, look at the uh, cooperation we've had with them on the JCPOA and other things. Uh, this is not being a black and white situation, but we are now transforming it into one, uh, which I think is stupid, self-defeating, and, and unproductive. And of course, we're not thinking at all about the blowback on ourselves economically and in other ways. And we talk about proliferation of dangerous technology. Well, the Russians have uh, been very good about not necessarily providing much of what many of their alleged friends or temporary partners have wanted. What will they do in the future, given the way we have treated them? I, I don't know, but I don't, I don't see much good happening. It does worry me a great deal. What did you make of the Biden administration's responses to Russia's proposals when they called for neutrality for Ukraine and for a rolling back of offensive weapon systems uh, inside Eastern Europe? My reading of it is there was some flexibility. For example, you mentioned inspections of U.S. Uh, missile sites in Poland and Romania. I, I could have it wrong, but I believe the Biden administration signaled some potential openness to that. I'm wondering what you think of, of how Biden responded and also Putin's decision to invade. Do you think that he had other options? And strategically, from a Russian point of view, was this strategically the right move? Or do you think there was possibly more room for diplomacy, not only on uh, NATO and missiles, but also on the status of the Donbass and the war there? Well, I think uh, the, the one voice of reason in the Biden administration is the CIA director. Uh, or the National Intelligence uh, Director, and that is William Burns. Uh, he has always been a voice of reason on the subject of Russia. And he has tried to, uh, what's the right word, modulate uh, the Russian uh, hate that is so prevalent. But again, he's being crushed by those who see Russia as something that has to be denationalized, much as the left is denationalizing the United States as a place whose borders have to be open to allow mass migration from the developing world into Russia. All of these things are part and parcel of the reasons people hate, hate Russia. And of course, Russia declares itself to be a, an Orthodox Christian country. That's completely unacceptable because atheism, nihilism, multiculturalism, uh, all of these things are, are caught up together. And there is a vile hatred for anybody who uh, thinks the kinds of things that exist in Russia could be remotely positive in any way. Uh, William Burns has tried to push back against that. He's tried to reason with people about it. It hasn't worked very well. But I think there was a chance for a short time. Now, Putin, from where he sits, looks at what's going on. He's aware of the things that we're discussing. But he also saw a large troop buildup in eastern Ukraine approximately 60,000 troops that were poised to strike at the Donbass, at Luhansk and Donetsk. And I think he was persuaded that this would happen and that obviously the Donetsk and Luhansk republics and their population would be destroyed. And he could not sit by and tolerate that. I also think he thought that there was no hope. 
that every time he tried to make the case, which he did several times, no one would listen to him. Somebody said, well, the reason this didn't happen under Donald Trump was that Donald Trump is strong and no one would challenge him. It had a lot less to do with that than Trump's private willingness to listen to Mr. Putin's position. What, what disappointed Putin and I think many others was Donald Trump's inability to get control of his own administration. He appointed people that were absolutely opposed to him and his thinking. So from the moment he opened his mouth and said, why can't we have a better relationship with Russia? He was sabotaged and subverted. Putin realized that. Then I think he waited to see how Biden would respond. And of course, you know that Biden was bragging about how he told uh, Putin that he was a vicious killer and a thug, how proud he was of insulting the man to his face and denigrating him and, and what he's done inside Russia. Uh, I think you put that together with the buildup in the East, and I think he felt Russia was genuinely, genuinely threatened, and he thought it was only a matter of time until something akin to the Pershing II missiles that we once had on the ground in Germany would show up in eastern Ukraine. And we can all sit here and say, oh, well, that wouldn't have happened. But he had a lot of reason to believe that it would, for the reasons we've already discussed, the NATOization of things. Uh, and that's the kind that, remember, the Pershing II was a hypersonic missile. You know, you're talking a few minutes and it lands in Moscow. And he kept telling people this. No one would listen. And there was no willingness to, to reassure him and his government in any way, shape, or form that this was not the intention. So I think he rightly concluded he didn't have much choice. And I think the biggest mistake that he's made, if he's made any with this operation, so I, th I think he's tried to be too careful. And I think it's tragic. But when you, when you do what he's done with his force, you try very hard to avoid unnecessary civilian casualties and avoid damage, you end up in the position he's in. This thing has lasted three weeks, longer than, than he would have liked. It creates opportunities for your enemies, for your opponents to, to meddle in, in what's happening. It gives false hope to people on the other side. That's the problem, and that's what he's up against. And I'm sure he's heard that from his inner circle. I'm sure some of his senior officers have said that. And uh, if you try to convince anybody in the United States, by the way, that Vladimir Putin was remotely concerned about the loss of civilian life in Ukraine, well, they'll laugh you off the stage. That's impossible. He's evil. He's terrible. He's bad. It's a lot of nonsense. He was. And he still is, I think. I think he would like to get an agreement because I don't think he wants anything to do with going into Kiev. Kiev. Yeah. <laughs> That's the last option. I mean, if you look at it right now, uh, Kharkiv and Kiev are, are about it. The cauldron uh, has to be dealt with, and they're still laying siege to Mariupol, but I'm afraid, given the enemy that they have cornered there, the 3,000 Azov members, they're probably going to reduce it and be done with it. But that's clearly not what he wants in Kharkiv. That's clearly not what he wants in Kiev. But if he can't get somebody to put their name on the agreement and agree to those basic terms, then I suppose he's going to act. Well, let me Russia ask has you. attacked Kharkiv. I mean, there were civilian <laughs> buildings hit there. Yeah, the question is whether they will uh, actually go in and the in the way they treat it, the way they did Grozny, for example. And yes, I think you're right, uh, Max, and that's the point, Aaron. If you go back to World War II, one of the first things that, that all sides learned in the war was that you don't win a city by going room to room and building to building to flush out your enemy. doesn't work. You bring up artillery. You lower the guns and direct fire, and you bring down city blocks. That's what happened in Warsaw. It happened in Stalingrad. It happened all over Europe, all during the war. When we went into Manila, we did exactly the same thing. It was ferocious. 
Nobody wants to do that. It is the worst possible outcome. And that's why, for instance, as I was telling you earlier, I looked at some film footage this morning that came from Poland that was transmitted into Poland from Ukraine, showing Ukrainian citizens that had showed up at an exit point from Mariupol where the Russians said, come out, we have humanitarian assistance, in other words, food and, and medicines and so forth, and you will be protected. And sure enough, there was the Azov battalion. You're not leaving. You're not going anywhere. And the people, of course, were destroyed. But that's where we are. Yeah, I, I, we're seeing a lot of these sort of um, incidents at checkpoints of motorists being shot, particularly men. Uh, there may have been even some uh, Western journalist or a journalist uh, who was shot at one of these checkpoints. Uh, still looking into that. Um, but that narrative obviously isn't getting out. I, I know you, you uh, have to go soon, Colonel Douglas McGregor. Just wanted to ask you based on your last comments about negotiations. Um, that is obviously part of the Russian strategy. It's the linchpin of the Russian strategy to advance, uh, to inflict damage on the Ukrainian military while negotiating in order to um, affect what's been taking place at the table. Because there have really been no negotiations for the last year that have had any effect at all. So now we're starting to see some movement, I think. Vladimir Zelensky has said publicly that Ukraine does not wish to join NATO. I guess my my question is, do you think, I mean, you have sources all around the region. Do you think Zelensky even has the ability to negotiate given the different forces in Ukrainian politics, the hardline forces, the U.S.? Um, and how do you see the negotiations shaping up when the U.S. is so at least at this point, when the Biden administration is so hostile and de determined to escalate. Well, let's be frank. Zelensky right now has better press than Mother Teresa. Uh, so he's reluctant to give that up. And uh, he's become a rock star to uh, the West, uh, pretending to be a lot of things that he's not, but it's worked very well for him. He has always been in danger of some of the hardliners, the radicals that control, frankly, the uh, SBU, the uh, equivalent of uh, the secret police inside Ukraine, as well as uh, the military, uh, of being assassinated himself if he, if he went too far. I don't know if that's still the case. I'm sure there's some, some truth to that. But I really think that uh, the cards are in the hands of uh, Washington and in the hands of President Biden. And President Biden is in a position that's not very different, since Aaron Maté is interested in Vietnam, uh, not very different from Lyndon Johnson in this sense. Uh, Lyndon Johnson wanted to end the war in Vietnam. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that he didn't want to go there at all. Uh, but it didn't make any difference, because he was afraid that if he didn't do those things, that he would be outed as soft on communism and a friend of the Reds and so forth. And so Johnson found it impossible to simply cut his losses and get out, which was the right thing to do in 1968-69. All the generals privately said, this is a waste of time. We're not going to win it. Let's go. He didn't do it. Uh, and obviously, he didn't run for re-election. I think Biden's in a similar position right now. If he, if he, he's got, the, he's got the, the uniparty out there depicting him as feckless, weak, incompetent, incapable. If he were to simply say, all right, Mr. Z, the show's over. Sign on the dotted line. We'll back you. 
we'll help you rebuild, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I think uh, he can't do that. I think he should, but I don't think he can. And I think every time he's inclined in that direction, he's warned by the people around him of the dangers associated with that. Now, there's political dangers. Yeah. But there are a couple of things that are, that are also happening. The assumption is, well, if we can just keep the Russians in the field long enough, their army will collapse. Well, there's no evidence for that. If we can just keep them in the field long enough, the population at home will say, bring them back. And this is bad. There's no evidence for that right now. But there is a lot of evidence that our position economically is going to continue to weaken. You had Mohammed El Aryan just the other day who said a hundred basis point increase in the interest rates. In other words, a 1% rise could send the American economy into a recession, a deep recession, maybe something worse. Well, uh, the longer this goes on, the, the harsher the outcome for us here at home. You know that gasoline prices, like so many things, are lagging indicators. So the real problems have not even struck yet. So if you look at the prices of food, uh, energy, metals, these kinds of commodities, then add to that the enormous sovereign national debt that we have to service and the unambiguous requirement to increase interest rates and deal with inflation that is ostensibly dangerous to the economy. The question is how long before we fall apart? How long before we, we simply can't go on? I mean, I'm always reminded of uh, the question that used to come up in graduate school and then subsequently when I was teaching, when did the British leave India? Well, the British did not leave India when they should have, when it made sense to do so, when it was strategically advisable. They left India when their debt to GDP ratio was 240% after World War II in 1947. That's when they left because they were broke. I suspect that we'll have something similar to that here in the United States. Uh, that will be a game changer. But all the expectations of imminent failure in Russia, I think, are, are ridiculous. I don't see any of that. And I think they'll stay the course. It's vital. It's a vital strategic interest for them. It isn't for us. It never has been. That's the problem. Well, Colonel Douglas McGregor, we're coming up on an hour. You're invited to stay with us. We have a, uh, a, a I'm massive glad you reminded me. I, I'm surprised my phone has not jumped off the table here. <laughs> I, well, I thanks very it. much for inviting I me. I appreciate it. it. I wish you guys well. Thank you so thank much. You, and, uh, you, you know, judging from the feedback we're getting, our audience salutes you and thanks you for your honesty in a time of uh, just complete deceit. So thank you so yeah, much for joining us. Well, Americans are beginning to figure things out. It's it's slow, painful, but they're beginning to think, figure things out. And when you start to hear people refer to anyone they disagree with as a traitor, you're in a lot of trouble. That doesn't speak yep. of strength. That suggests real weakness yep. in the government and the people that run yep. it. And as I've been and saying, I, I think- the president would step forward and put a stop to it, but he won't. Yep. Yep. No, it, it, it is a complete a sign of a, a lack of confidence in the in this the system that they claim to represent, the democracy they claim to represent. And one, I've been one saying last thing. during the Kosovo yeah. air campaign, I had a British major who was in the intelligence section of the Joint Operations Center where I was a director. He got into something of an argument with uh, people that worked for Alastair Campbell. These were professional spinmeisters that had been 
sent across by Tony Blair to help, quote-unquote, spin the air campaign as a big success. And uh, this British major got into an argument with him, and finally the British major you know, said, he, he said, look, you can't say that. That's not true. He said, well, of course we can. doesn't matter whether it's true or false. And he said, look, if our cause is just, why do we have to lie about it? And I think that's where we are right now in Washington. Okay, folks. Thank you. Thank you, Colonel. Thanks, Colonel. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that was an enormous interview. And uh, I think we have our largest audience yet of any live stream because, as Colonel McGregor said, people are, are waking up. We're getting all different perspectives in the chat. Um, left, right, probably not center. Um, but the center feels just it's completely off base at this point. And I think what's so significant or one of the things that was so significant about someone like Doug McGregor uh, saying what he said about the NATOization of Ukraine is that he was the lead strategist for Wesley Clark, the NATO Supreme Allied Commander, the guy who presided for at CENTCOM for the Pentagon over Europe. Um, he was and one of the you know top strategists for NATO saying openly that NATO drove us to this point, pushed to the brink of war, baited the bear, and now is getting hit at, at its de facto bases inside Ukraine, like the Yaraviv base. And that's what I think is so threatening about someone like Doug McGregor to the war party or what he call, calls the uniparty in Washington, you know, which traverses the Senate from Lindsey Graham to Bob Menendez to the Newland Blinken State Department. Uh, but there, it, it's, it's, so it's really remarkable to see that level of candor and criticism uh, when everyone's just told NATO is a defensive alliance. It's a defensive alliance. Aaron, what were your uh, impressions? Well, just what you're saying there about McGregor's uh, position, his insider knowledge and his record, despite the fact that obviously, and it comes out in that conversation, I have so many areas of disagreement with him when he talks about Vietnam and the record of U.S. not deliberately targeting civilians. When I think Vietnam is an example of the U.S. deliberately killing civilians en masse, committing mass murder, he talks about Marxist globalists, multiculturalism, There's obviously all these areas where we don't agree. But just as when, you know, we go on Tucker Carlson, that doesn't mean that we endorse Tucker Carlson's views. The point is that right now we're in a very dangerous moment where the U.S. has provoked this war in Ukraine and threatening even much worse than is already happening. And so that's why it's so important to get voices that have been on the inside that know how wars are fought, how they work and what are the interests that fuel them to hear from someone like Colonel McGregor, no matter how many other disagreements we have with him on on other matters. Yeah. And it's interesting because you have this trend in the Pentagon of what the right attacks is the, the woke generals, general Mark Milley being the most clear example. And yeah. this is someone who sabotaged the Afghan withdrawal, who actually was on the streets in DC in June, 2020, walking around trying to please Trump calling for dominating the battle space against black lives matter. And then, you know, he starts uh, when Biden comes in, he wants to please Biden. So he says that he supports critical race theory because he wants to know how the, the neo, the neo-Nazis or the white supremacists who are somehow infesting the military actually think. 
which has infuriated a lot of the old guard and and uh, people in the military. But I mean, you look at you look at where the a lot part of the Pentagon is going. It's appeasing the dominant liberal, uh, the dominant liberal faction in Washington right now. And what does the dominant liberal faction want to do? And who are they? Well, they're chicken hawks. They're yeah. soft-handed chicken hawks who want to, they believe in this Wilsonian idea of exporting values. And so their obsession with Russia really goes to something that Doug McGregor has said, which is that Russia is seen in Washington, particularly by those forces, as a bastion of conservatism. And so they're fighting this kind of global culture war by refusing to negotiate with Putin or telling Zelensky, look, just go to the table and we'll help you rebuild Ukraine, just end end the war. Instead, they're flooding it with weapons because they want to fight the conservative right-wing white menace in Moscow. They're, and I, I mean, I've talked to those kinds of people around think tanks in Washington. Like, I know how they think. It's very, very dangerous. That was also the neoconservative position in the first Bush term about exporting values against the the Islamists, the radical um, is Islamic backwards conservatives by bringing, remember when Revlon was brought into a Afghanistan, it was either Revlon or um, another makeup company. And they set up an office in Kabul or a, a salon in Kabul to bring makeup to Afghan women. It's that same mentality. Um, and, you know, he mentioned that William Burns, the CIA director, is the only person in the administration who is pushing back on this perspective. Actually, we interviewed Ray McGovern when uh, Burns was first nominated, and he said he would be the only sensible person in the Biden administration, but it looks like he's taken a back seat. You know, just compare someone like Colonel McGregor to, say, Samantha Power. So yeah, Samantha Power is a perfect example. So, so Samantha Power, right, in her rhetoric, she would never uh, demonize refugees, say anything uh, bigoted about them. But her policies versus someone like McGregor would create millions of refugees, whereas the non-interventionists like McGregor would not. And that's what gets missed here. We are, we're dominated right now. We're run by people who have the right rhetoric. They say the right things but their actual policies are responsible for so much carnage, whether it's in Ukraine right now by using Ukraine as cannon fodder or in Syria, you know, um, where there was just been, where there's been a dirty war for the last uh, decade. And that was started under Obama, just as the coup in Ukraine was also started under Obama. Yeah. We, well, Samantha power was actually silent on Yemen for her entire time in the Obama administration when her job, they created a special fake job for her as some kind of human rights czar uh, and until she was appointed UN ambassador where her job was to basically scream at Vitaly Cherkin uh, because Russia and Syria were being too mean to Al Qaeda and East Aleppo. And she compared it to like Srebrenica and like said, this is gonna be the, she called it genocide. And then when East Aleppo was cleared out, she just was silent because there wasn't any evidence of genocide. But the point is, Samantha Power loves dirty wars. She loves bombing brown people. Uh, she her convoy ran over a black child, and she kept she kept chugling. She just kept steaming through. Uh, on that 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 incident, I think people. Sorry, I'm going off on Samantha Power so much, but I, you know, she's one of the most repellent figures in this whole this whole interventionist theater because she was actually on a tour i think it was cameroon 
with her convoy to basically mop up the damage from Libya. People don't realize that. Um, but the reason she was there was to meet with young women who had been captured by Boko Haram. Remember the Bring Back Our Girls campaign and Michelle Obama with her sad face holding the card with the hashtag. The girls had been kidnapped by Boko Haram because Boko Haram was able to advance all across Africa into northern Nigeria because it had benefited from the looted arms depots that exactly. were opened by the Libyan intervention that Samantha Power was a key advocate for. Exactly. So Samantha Power was just virtue signaling instead of cleaning up her own mess. Uh, so that's the damage that these kind of liberal interventions have done. And they're there again, preventing any negotiation over this because Putin is their new, it's like that they, they see him as interchangeable with Trump as part of this global culture war. And they cannot look at anything rationally. That's what Russiagate was about for so many of these people. In addition to, as the late Stephen Cohen said, criminalizing diplomacy, uh, making it impossible for Trump to actually negotiate something that would have headed off this war. I go back to that uh, phone call that was intercepted between Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Piat, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in January 2014, just weeks before the coup. And they talk about how their plan to install a new Ukrainian government, it needs an attaboy. And they specifically yeah. reference Joe Biden and Jake Sullivan. And now Joe, it's like Joe Biden and Jake Sullivan are now back to essentially pick up where they left off, which is using Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia, dangling the prospect of NATO membership. And these are the people, Biden and Jake Sullivan, who are now running policy, the people who essentially help start this crisis, who have as much responsibility as anyone, along with Victoria Nuland, who was uh, the person on the ground carrying out this coup policy for them. And now they're the ones in charge. And McGregor mentioned that Bill Burns is a voice of dissent. And, you know, he was he was the author of that cable warning about NATO expansion to Ukraine being a red line for Russia. This was back in 2008. But now Burns is there in the CIA and, you know, he seems to be carrying out the Biden administration's policy. Yeah. So it's it's certainly the only sort of line that Biden will not cross is World War Three. But short of that, I mean, these people obviously want to stoke an insurgency inside of Ukraine that could bleed Russia. That was what Hillary Clinton laid out on TV a few weeks ago when she went on Rachel Maddow. So I'm just wondering if they're going to back off from that. That's now that fantastical. It feels fantastical, mm -hmm. especially after the attack on the foreign mercenary base. The, um, the idea that an insurgency could take place with the Russian military present. I mean, it was the insurgency in Syria that was immediately crushed by the Russian intervention. Yeah. Uh, there's no, well, the rat line would be through Poland. Poland is not Erdogan's Turkey. The Russian military is not the Syrian army, which was just basically being um, pounded and in some cases encircled before Russia entered. So with the same I, kinds I, of weapons with, with, with uh, javelins and stingers that the U.S. provided. Yeah, yeah. Well, or, they, were, they, were Toby, they were older toe BGMs, but it was really like um, the, the influx of toe BGMs that allowed uh, uh, weakening of some of the Syrian tank battalions, which were T-72s, and the advance 
from Idlib, which had just been captured in 2015 by the so-called moderate rebels. Then it was the coalition of Jaysh al-Fatah, which really included hardline Al-Qaeda elements. And they were marching toward the Alawite heartland, which is just west of Idlib. And Russia saw that and said, no, we are not going to allow what effectively will be a genocide in the encirclement of Damascus. And that was the end of it. So that, that, and that really, I think, informed the thinking on what was happening ahead of the invasion. Not This is not a justification, but basically me recapitulating what I know, which was interviewing Russell Bentley, U.S., uh, you know, an American citizen, a Texan who relocated to Donetsk, fought with the Nova Russian army. And we've interviewed him several times. I interviewed him two days before the Russian intervention in Ukraine. And he told me that Ukrainian forces had, were staging a massive escalation that they had not seen before. Grad rockets were hitting uh, civilian buildings, schools, a hospital was hit, and people were alarmed. The Duma report that was subsequently released by Russia, by the Russian government, asserted that the Ukrainian military was planning a massive offensive against, against Donetsk and Lugansk. And Putin has referred to it as genocidal. Certainly the Azov Battalion and the ultra-nationalist forces have a genocidal mentality towards the ethnic Russian population. So that informed the thinking there as well. Uh, and Colonel McGregor referenced that. So I think what we're seeing is very similar to what we saw in Syria, but on a much more massive scale. And the U.S. pundits, the kind of like Arenta generals you'll see on MSNBC, they don't understand. I don't think they understand the Russian military strategy. That's another reason why I wanted to bring Colonel McGregor on. Um, they think that Russia really wants to go into Kiev and reduce the city to rubble. And you know, while that, I guess, is not completely off the table. Uh, the strategy really was to encircle the Ukrainian military, its best units, which were always in the east, pounding Donetsk and Luhansk, to negotiate their retreat, then crush the nationalist units, Azov, IDAR, these kind of paramilitaries incorporated into the National Guard, basically liquidate them. And that's what we're seeing there with the encirclement in the east. And to cut Kiev off and take Mariupol, which is the base of the Azov Battalion. They took that city in 2014 and have had total control of it. Then you, you're seeing the civilian corridors. That's what we saw in Syria as well. I remember driving on the highway uh, east of Damascus, um, actually, sorry, um, going through Ghouta towards the Lebanese border, uh, through Douma, through all of these suburbs that had been reduced to rubble during the fierce fighting with so many of these um, so-called moderate rebels, but specifically Jaysh al-Islam, the most ferocious Saudi-backed group, and hearing people describe to me who are from these areas that there were civilian corridors, but Jaysh al-Islam and the al-Rahman brigade sponsored by Qatar was trying to prevent the civilians from getting out and would actually snipe at them to prevent them from getting out because that was their collateral. In other words, human shields. Um, to prevent more ferocious attacks. And so we're seeing the civilian corridors being sabotaged. Uh, but that's part of the Russian strategy is to get civilians out through the corridors, then uh, negotiate the demise of these various factions. And uh, it seems to be happening. It happened much slower than I think the Russian military 
wanted, but it seems to be happening. And then the lesson of Aleppo uh, was just very clear to get, just get everyone out, weak, uh, prevent the, con the weapons from coming in and then uh, bring in your military police, uh, do kind of counterinsurgency, bring in aid trucks and so on and do your PR operation. That's where I think things are going. Uh, I don't think that's well understood in Washington. And the whole point is to sabotage it by sending in weapons. I don't yeah. know how the weapons are going to get in. Yeah. Yeah. I look, you know, I can't speak to the military situation in Ukraine. It's not something I follow, but I was struck by how different Colonel McGregor's uh, interpretation of what's going on is than what we get every day on cable news. The way you hear it on cable news and from Biden administration officials is that Ukrainian military has put up this uh, just historic resistance to the Russian army and that Russia is suffering severe losses. And I don't know. I mean, may maybe they're right. I have no idea. But McGregor. I mean, they fought. It seems. Closely. Sorry to interrupt, but it does seem the Ukrainian military has fought very valiantly in harsh mm. conditions and, and really uh, over against overwhelming odds. But it doesn't mean. As Scott Ritter said, you know, you can get in the ring with Mike Tyson and dance all you want, but sooner or later, the overwhelming force is going to rule the day. And that's what Russia has, just overwhelming firepower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to another point, um, because you were, you were talking about Biden um, and Colonel McGregor brought this up. Biden said that he called Putin a thug to his face. <laughs> And this really, I think, was a factor in, um, in, in the demise of negotiations. Yeah. But we have to remember when Biden said that. He claimed that on the campaign trail, which is what's so dangerous about American politics. Like Russiagate created this uh, incentive for politicians to talk about how hostile they will be instead of how diplomatic they will be with a nuclear armed power. The second point is, when did Biden say he did that? He said that he did that when he was in Moscow to renegotiate the uh, the, re the the reset with Russia to get it back on track. So we're supposed to believe that Joe Biden <laughs> went to Moscow, sitting with Putin and his inner circle at a table in Moscow, when his entire purpose for being there was to get to improve relations with Russia and prevent the reset, the, the new start with Russia from going off the rails. And he sat there and said, you're a thug <laughs> and just defied his entire mission. No, Biden straight up lied on yeah. the campaign trail. Which he has a record of doing. He has a long record of embellishing his, yeah. his past, including setting, saying he, was, he got arrested in South Africa for protesting apartheid. <laughs> yeah, and he said. I think he said he got arrested protesting, uh, you know, for civil rights. When the most he did was sit on a diving board at a uh, in a black neighborhood in William in, in Wilmington, Delaware, and watch uh, corn pop and his friends swim in the pool. <laughs> so he's just straight up lied. But it was a very consequential lie, as we see. And Biden is not the crazy one in the administration. I mean, that's that's Newland and Blinken. And speaking of crazy, and I, I forgot to ask Colonel McGregor about this, but how about Zelensky a couple of days before Russia invaded, going to the Munich Security Conference and talking about Ukraine once again acquiring 
nuclear weapons. Based, by the way, on a really false premise, there's this, you know, you hear this talking point a lot that if Ukraine had just kept its nuclear weapons that they gave up in 1994 under the Budapest Agreement, then they wouldn't be in the situation today. But as people like Scott Ritter point out, they didn't have the keys to those nuclear weapons. Those were Soviet nuclear weapons, so controlled in Moscow. And so even if Ukraine wanted to use them, they wouldn't be able to. So Ukraine was basically giving up something they couldn't even use and couldn't even control. But Zelensky goes to the Munich Security Conference and he says this. And certainly that must have rang alarm bells in Washington to have the Ukrainian president talking about acquiring nuclear weapons, especially in the context of everything else that's that's gone on, including uh, the previous Ukrainian government after it was installed by the U.S., changing its constitution to no longer enshrine neutrality and talk about joining NATO as a as an explicit goal. You also had a deepening of U.S. military ties to Ukraine. Uh, there was an agreement signed last year between Ukraine and the Pentagon. Another one between Ukraine and the State Department in November, again, enshrining NATO membership of the goal as the goal and sort of yep. fostering cooperation to get Ukraine sufficiently militarily ready to join uh, NATO. So despite the rhetoric now that, oh, Ukraine joining NATO was never a serious possibility, the Biden administration, after it came into office, certainly took a lot of steps, every step really that it could to make NATO membership for Ukraine a possibility. Yep. Yep. I just wanted to share this real quick, just based on my last comment. This is Biden <laughs> in Wilmington. <laughs> and he, the reason that he did this photo op was because he had been caught in a lie about, uh, you know, per participating in the civil rights movement. So he went back to his lifeguard job where he fought corn pop. And, uh, it's an iconic image in my opinion. Okay. Um, the, the it's a really important point that you made about um, Zelensky at the Munich Security Conference, um, which you know was also graced by the presence of the Young Turks who were there to uh, provide PR services to NATO ministers, <laughs> while there were massive anti-war protests outside. Um, Zelensky was puffing out his chest and really appealing to the crowd there. And what he said was that he regretted that the Ukrainian government in 1994 signed the Budapest Memorandum, which was going to take the Soviet era nuclear weapons away for disposal or storage and provide Ukraine with fuel rods and all of the infrastructure it needed to main maintain civilian nuclear reactors and to power the country. And so this was a move towards peace that he denounced because he thought that if Ukraine had kept nuclear weapons, then it would have had deterrent capacity against Russia to essentially tell Russia, you know, you want to come in here while we're joining NATO, we will nuke Moscow. That is a, a bonkers statement to make. And it feels like he was set up to make it. I mean, who is Zelensky? Everybody watching this knows who Zelensky is. He's just playing a role. He's inhabiting a role. And his initial role in 2019 was to make peace, but he soon found that was impossible. He was pressured on two sides by the ultra-nationalists, the neo-Nazis, the hardliners, and the U.S. And so now here he is, the war president, getting a massive reception at Munich. He's loving his new role. And so he's calling for nuclear weapons. I think that definitely set off alarm bells in Moscow and helped uh, incite 
Russia to invade. And the NATOization of Ukraine goes beyond all of these agreements that have been, been made between the West, between Washington and Ukraine, to the insertion and constant cycling through of thousands of U.S. military personnel, including trainers, who have worked hand in glove with the Azov Battalion. I mean, it's not hard to find photos of U.S. military trainers, like high-level officers, palling around with the Azov Battalion. You know, U.S. patch here and a Nazi Wolfsangle patch on the other arm. The $200 million authorized in December by the Biden administration uh, for new weapons, new offensive weapons. Remember under um, Obama and Trump, but especially under Obama when offensive weapons to Ukraine were controversial and Obama didn't want to give them? Now it's like it just became imperative under Biden. So the thinking in Washington was in the in the Biden administration, at least among that crazy set in the in the State Department, the Newlands and, and Blinkens, was that Russia was never going to do anything of substance to counter the NATOization of Ukraine. So why stop? Because we've wanted to do that since the Wolfowitz Doctrine in the first Bush administration. That's where these people come from. They come from that mindset of, um, you know, the project for a new American century mindset of total unipolar U.S. domination. And Ukraine is really the capstone. If you can get Ukraine and NATO, you've done it. You've dominated Russia and you're just going to start pushing forward towards the balkanization of Russia. That's And that's how I think they were thinking until they got smashed in the face. And as Mike Tyson said, you know, you always have a plan until you get hit in the face. You know, on that point about Obama refusing to send uh, more arms to Ukraine after he realized what he had gotten into by launching the coup and starting a proxy war in the Donbass. Let me quote you from uh, the memoir of a uh, former senior Pentagon official served under Obama, Derek Sholet, who says this when it comes to uh, Obama's decision not to send arms to Ukraine, despite everybody, including Joe Biden and Blinken and Jake Sullivan, pressuring to Cholet uh, writes this, quote, this was one of the few occasions I can recall in the Obama administration in which just about every senior official was for doing something that the president opposed. So that's the one few areas where we can give Obama some credit and that everybody from Biden to Blinken to Sullivan were telling him to send more weapons to Ukraine and he refused to do it. And the reason is obvious and it was reported on at the time. He didn't want to further inflame a proxy war that he started and he especially did not want U.S. weapons to get into the hands of neo-Nazis and other far-right militants inside Ukraine. All of those concerns have since been discarded with Obama's exit from office began under Trump when Trump was pressured into sending weapons to Ukraine and the Biden administration has escalated that. And on the point about neo-Nazis, Max, I, I wanted to ask you about the recent piece you did with Alex Rubenstein at the Gray Zone. I was recently going back and watching my old interviews with Stephen F. Cohen, the late Russia scholar, where, by the way, he predicts everything that has happened. And one of the things he said to me um, in an interview in the fall of 2019, when Trump was being impeached for pausing weapon sales to Ukraine, and Adam Schiff was declaring this was a grave national security threat to uh, the U.S. because, in his words, we have to fight Russia over there so that we don't have to fight them here. And one of the things that Dr. Cohen said was that neo-Nazis in Ukraine and far-right forces are putting a lot of pressure on Zelensky to abandon his campaign platform of making peace with Russia, of ending the war in the Donbass. 
And Cohen said that if the U.S. does not stand up for Zelensky uh, and and uh, basically tell the far right in Ukraine to fall back, then they're going to win out because there's no countervailing force to the Ukrainian far right uh, except for the, the U.S. And so he says only the U.S. can essentially prevent catastrophe and save Zelensky's peace mandate. Well, of course, we know what the U.S. did. They just continued to pump weapons into Ukraine and did nothing to pressure Zelensky uh, and give him a stronger hand to actually implement the Minsk Accords. And that takes us to, you know, uh, this war and your article, which was headlined how Ukraine's Jewish president Zelensky made peace with neo-Nazi paramilitaries on front lines of the war with Russia. So really, I fault the U.S. for the fact that Zelensky had to abandon his campaign platform because who else was going to be there to be a countervailing force to the far right inside Ukraine? Right. I mean, and that, and you look at the U.S. glad handling far right figures like Andre Perubi. I was, I mentioned this debate I was in with um, a Ukrainian legislator named Ina Sovson on on CGTN. America the other day. And it's one of the few, you know, they have this program called the heat. It's one of the few places where I can actually, you know, mix it up with establishment figures and think tankers. And yeah, usually doesn't work out too well for them, but you know, it, it, if you actually kind of prod them a little bit, it exposes what, what they're really about. And after some prodding, this legislator, Ina Sovson said she only favors a military solution. There is only one solution against Russia. It is military and the U.S. needs to intervene to do that work. And therefore, you know, she started bringing up Russia's potential chemical attack and was really upset that NATO hadn't done it yet. So I looked her up. It turns out, well, actually, we had gotten into an exchange where she was denying the presence of Ukrainian neo-Nazis. She's like, you're talking about Nazis when we're being bombed? And how could you talk about Nazis? And I was like, this seems to be kind of part of the equation here. Uh, have you heard of Andre Perubi? And she said, yeah, but he hasn't been the speaker of the Ukrainian Rada for three years. And I said, so you have a guy who founded a neo-Nazi, two neo-Nazi parties, who was the speaker of the Ukrainian parliament. That's pretty significant. And I looked her up and she had actually done rallies recently with Perubi and people from Poroshenko's party, the former president, against Zelensky. They called it Red Line for Zelensky. And they were having huge ultranationalist rallies in Kiev against the Minsk agreement and any attempt at pulling, withdrawing the nationalist forces from the gray zone around the Donbass area. So Zelensky was under constant domestic pressure. And when we hear uh, all of this, you know, you look at your Twitter sidebar, it'll say Zelensky has survived 14 assassination attempts. You think like Russia's sending him exploding cigars. No, the people who wanted to assassinate Zelensky were yeah. the ultranationalists. It were the people who had been incorporated into not just the Ukrainian National Guard, but Kiev City Council was using them to attack migrants and Roma, Romani people. Um, they were working hand in glove with the Interior Ministry, the national core of the Azov Battalion to intimidate and control politics. So he was under a massive internal pressure. Actually, Amnesty International in Ukraine issued a report in 2018 about these forces. They never translated it into English for obvious reasons. Uh, and they said it, as long as these ultranationalist forces maintain so much influence in Ukraine, no one in Ukrainian society is safe. So that would include the president. I think he never had any power. He is 
basically, you know, Justin Bieber for the believers in the Western press corps and the beltway hacks who think Russia, I'm sorry, who think Ukraine can win this war. You look at the press conferences, like they're like ready. They're like, it's like they're ready to throw their panties at him. It's disgusting. Uh, And he's loving that role, but he has no domestic power in Ukraine. And I mean, where where, the where are Ukrainians who want to fight this war turning to? They're fight. They're turning towards the people who are fighting in Mariupol, like the Azov Battalion. That 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 they're not turning towards Zelensky. So I don't know how he can negotiate. But we can see from my the piece I did with Alex, he hasn't been able to negotiate even with the forces in his own society. How's he going to negotiate a deal with Russia? It's tragic. It's really tragic. Yeah, I, I actually should tell you, I, I, when I was in Damascus, I met a legislator from Crimea, from the United Russia Party. Uh, he was like sort of a young guy who was on his way up in Crimea, which had voted to um, you know, be annexed by Russia. And I said, what do you think about Zelensky? Like he'd just been elected and he was like, he is our hope. He is our only hope for avoiding a terrible, terrible war. This is a guy from Putin's party. So that really highlights the, what Zelensky meant in 2019 versus what he is today. Max, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Colonel McGregor mentioned George Soros in the context of Ukraine. And often when we hear George Soros's name, they can come in the form of either, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, or they also can come in the realm of uh, real things. And so in the case of Ukraine, has Soros had an influence in terms of uh, manufacturing uh, the uh, the regime change operation that happened in 2014 and, and other related efforts to basically turn Ukraine into a NATO colony? Well, definitely. I mean, you know the answer to that. I mean, right now the big player in Ukraine would be Zelensky's money man, Igor Kolomoisky, who's one of the most corrupt men on the planet, funded Zelensky while he funded the Azov Battalion. Uh, basically funded Zelensky's career through these shell accounts that showed up in the Pandora Papers and still is wielding uh, influence, I would assume, over negotiations. But uh, Soros, I mean, when did he last kind of turn up in the news? It was before the Russian operation in Ukraine during another event that the world's eyes were focused on, which was the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And he used that occasion to call for regime change in Beijing mm-hmm. and the downfall of Xi Jinping. So that's, I mean, he just, he's just out there saying it. George Soros is, a, um, I think, the main funder of the New York Review of Books, which is the, um, the literary re- political review of the Bien Pensant liberal uh, intelligentsia in New York. And he, whenever he wants, he can write an article there. And every time he does, it's to call for regime change in a new place. I remember he said, you know, it's really important that we have regime change in Syria in order to stop Putin. He wrote a piece prior to that declaring that Putin was worse than ISIS. So he's been obsessed. And what does he do? Well, he is one of the overt operators identified in the 1991 Washington Post column by David Ignatius, who's one of the CIA's kind of favorite channels in U.S. media, one of the overt operators doing the work that the CIA used to do covertly in the open. 
Ignatius also identified the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, he, you know, get, uh, he gave a pat on the back to the AFL-CIO, I would call the AFL-CIA, which is now uh, clamoring for sanctions on Russian workers, and all of these other channels for um, soft power and U.S. influence. And he foreshadowed in that column the, col the coming color revolutions uh, that would topple governments that were still friendly or maintain good diplomatic ties with Russia after the Soviet Union. The first one was uh, Edward Shevardnadze, the former foreign minister to Mikhail Gorbachev, who was president of Georgia and his replacement with the CIA asset, ultimately. Mikhail Saakashvili, who led Georgia into direct military confrontation with Russia over South Ossetia. So Soros is funding the civil society groups through his open societies foundations as an overt operator. He's funding the young people who, you know, getting them like they'll come out in, in, a, in a town square in Tbilisi or Kiev and they all show up in the same color poncho. You know, it's someone like Soros who's, who's paying for that, along with the media, the opposition media. We saw a, a outlet called Romadske. If you're watching, it's spelled H-R-O-M-A-D-S-K-E. If you want to look it up, this cropped up over, popped up overnight to support the Maidan uh, so-called revolution of dignity, the coup attempt in 2013, 2014. And it was sponsored by Soros and also Pierre Omidyar, which is really interesting because, you know, he controls the intercept and they're writing about Ukraine without acknowledging that their funder and owner had a direct hand in the coup attempt that took us to where we are today. So that's why I think Soros is such a, a is, is considered the devil everywhere from Hungary to Russia and all of these laws are introduced to ban NGOs, Human Rights Watch being the largest NGO that uh, Soros funds. And then the West counters and says, oh, they're anti-democratic. They're trying to ban human rights groups. They won't allow a civil society. And any criticism of Soros is deemed anti-Semitic. So I'm sure everyone watching kind of knew that history. You knew the answer to your own question, but I'm glad we kind of got into it. Um, and, you know, it, it is it is interesting that, I mean, I, Soros funds through his network a large swath of progressive media. So they kind of take a, a liberal interventionist line. I don't think George Soros is like, you must do this or you will all be fired. But I can tell you, Aaron, like I feel like more candid than I was able to be in the past. I'll tell you two stories about Soros. I guess I'll tell the... 5,500 people watching as well. Number one, one outlet I, I used to frequently write for, a progressive outlet, uh, I won't name it. I was actually told we can't publish pieces about Soros and what he's doing with you know, funding and regime change NGOs. We got to stay away from that because they were courting his people at the time for funding. So that, is, that does happen. Um, my second story is that I was in a I mean, I'm, I don't want to give all the details because I don't want to like embarrass certain individual people, but I was in a Middle Eastern city during the latter phases of the so-called Arab Spring, what some call the Sunni winter. Um, and I went, I went out to dinner. It was a pretty nice dinner in a society that was becoming increasingly impoverished. And uh, one of Soros's guys showed up. He was the head of the Open Society Foundations for the Middle East, I think, or not the head, but he was working there. 
they didn't have an office in this country. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, the labor unions have too much control and we want things to open up here economically. We want a more dynamic society. And so uh, we're working on, uh, you know, encouraging some political changes. And I kind of like made a joke. I was like, what are you going to do? Like fund protests or something? And he kind of nodded. I was like, that's crazy. Like this is real. It's really happening. And, you know, just talking to some of the younger English speaking technocrats in this society, they were all saying the same thing. Like the labor unions have too much power. They're, they're just, they're just stopping us from moving forward. And too many old people have these pensions and these old jobs from the previous regime. So that's really like what he's done. And that that's called liberalization. But to me, it's like the ultimate form of meddling. And it's someone who really, I mean, I don't know what country he claims to represent. Hungary, the U.S., what? It seems like he represents just global capitalism. Aaron, your mic is off. Sorry, uh, Soros profited off of ruining Hungary's economy, so I doubt he takes yeah. uh, much representation uh, from, from Hungary, or at least I doubt if Hungary wants his representation. Do we yeah. want to answer any super chats, Max? Well, we got one up. I don't know where... Thank you. Mark. A lot of them disappeared. Yeah, we missed yeah, them. A lot of them disappeared. So, yeah. you know, I apologize to all the super chats. I mean, what time is it? It's, I, I got a little time here. We could take some questions. Um, I should mention the, a news event that I'm following pretty closely, which kind of relates to um, peripherally, at least to high gas prices. Um, but there is a, a, there's been a trucker convoy mainly protesting, you know, mandates and the whole, you know, COVID regime that we've seen for the past two years parked outside DC about an hour and 20 minutes away in a muddy field in Hagerstown. I went up there a few days ago just to see what was going on. There were hundreds of trucks. It was massive. And, uh, but total confusion at the leadership level. They had no idea what they wanted to do. And, you know, I was talking to them and they were really panicking about the economic situation after the uh, Biden imposing sanctions on Russia acknowledging that gas prices were, would go up. These truckers were telling me it was costing them $1,500 to fill up their tank. Um, so that was another grievance of theirs that, you know, really was directed against Biden. And they were at that point being told by their leadership not to go into DC because they didn't want another January 6th situation where they were accused of being insurrectionists. They really wanted to win over the people to their side and explain to them, how all of these um, restrictions had hurt them personally, hurt their friends, hurt their industry. Um, but right now, I'm, I'm being told that almost all of them, or a large percentage of those trucks, are trying to get into DC, and the DC police are blocking off all of the exits to Washington DC at the Beltway um, on um, Route 50 as well. So we have a situation here. I'm going to go and find out what's going on there. Um, but, you know, if we want to take any more questions. Well, Max, I'm going to ask you a question and then I'm going to step out for two minutes because I have to make yeah. a very quick call. So I want to ask you to comment on the just what's happened with RT, the global censorship yeah. of RT. RT America shut down after it was dropped by uh, satellite cable carriers and just how indifferent our media colleagues have been to that as if this is a welcome or uh, irrelevant development, just that an entire network has been taken off of the air by YouTube, literally banned. You can't access RT anymore on YouTube. 
Well, before you go, I mean, you rarely would go on RT. Um, you know, I saw it as a platform where I could say whatever I wanted, but you would rarely go on. I remember you went on with Chris Hedges once and then it was portrayed as some kind of um, Russian plan. Like it was <laughs> like, like the Kremlin was controlling you. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, what, 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 are, what are your thoughts on what happened? Well, I just, it's just, you know, this was exactly normalized by Russiagate where anything deemed to be Russian disinformation associated with Russia was inherently nefarious. And this uh, crisis, this invasion of Ukraine gave them the pretext to essentially wipe off the airwaves, a countervailing narrative. And that doesn't mean that RT was always 100% factual or that they didn't promote uh, Russian propaganda. I'm sure they did. But what they also did is presented a point of view that was banned on US airways, that was a counterweight, especially on issues like Syria um, and many other important geopolitical issues. And it just, I'm just, uh, it's amazing to me how everyone or a lot of people in media just sort of either applauded this or shrugged. And I'll be right back, Max. I'll be right back. Yeah. Um, and I want to get this question up too. Um, when do I expect Biden to give asylum to the Azov Battalion? I've actually been thinking about this a little bit. Um, well, on the question of RT, uh, RT America was not banned by the U.S. government. It was a casualty of the sanctions of the uh, U.S. attack on the ruble and uh it was very abrupt so what was really sad about it for me you know because i'd been in their studios just i'd come in as a guest to comment on my pieces or i'd participate in panel discussions whatever over the years uh i got to know a lot of just the the, the more blue collar people working in there the cameramen the techs uh the editors these are just hardworking people in media who saw their jobs just terminated overnight out of nowhere. And, you know, I don't know where they're going to wind up next. Um, and it was a very unique network. I mean, that you could, I, it was the only network in town where I could actually talk about think tanks like the Atlantic Council being funded by the arms industry and, you know, generating the, banging the war drums. It was, you know, the only place that hosted a left-wing anti-imperialist comedy show with a live studio audience and with the, uh, you know, lockdowns and quarantines, the studio audience went away. Uh, that was hosted by Lee Camp. Then we saw Lee have his um, ability to even get likes on YouTube taken away by YouTube. Uh, Facebook took away the ability to get likes. The algorithm just crushed that show. And now, you know, Lee has had his entire archive removed. I mean, the entire archive of Breaking the Set has been removed by YouTube. Uh, Lee's show at Spotify, which had nothing to do with RT America, was taken away. So it is a straight up attack on journalists and journalism and all the correspondents at RT America, the higher profile ones, um, or Caleb Maupin at RT, but Rachel Blevins at RT America. They were labeled Russian state affiliated media on their personal Twitter pages. Uh, that was to kind of intimidate them, I think, and cause them to quit before RT America um, closed up shop abruptly. But, uh, you know, and there's been, of course, no solidarity or outcry from anyone else in U.S. media because, you know, we 
we have to hate Tchaikovsky. We have to hate all Russian culture. Russian people who have nothing to do with the Kremlin are now being targeted. So naturally, RT would 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 be in the crosshairs. Um, there's a lot to say about it, and um, you know, Sputnik still broadcasts in Washington D.C. on FM. Uh, it's still uh, it's still sort of there, but the Washington Post has basically been broadcasting calls for it to be banned as well. The First Amendment is not it 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 doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. The U.S. government is waging an information war, and it is effectively merged with corporate media. And if you look at what is happening to Julian Assange, where his appeals are being shot down one after another, while all these BBC journalists and journalists in Washington are cheering for a woman who protested on Russia's state channel one against the war, just ignoring Julian Assange and what their own country is doing, it's pretty obvious we don't have a free press anymore. This is just kind of the nail in the coffin. And the attacks on Tucker Carlson are very interesting. We're seeing calls for him to be put on trial, the top eight of the view, and be investigated for Kremlin ties because he is interrogating the whole issue of US-backed biolabs in Ukraine. And as I said before, I think part of removing part of the logic of removing RT from YouTube, getting it off the airwaves, it was booted off DirecTV as well, and the attacks on Tucker Carlson are to prevent a counter narrative if there is a Duma style staged event where that event can trigger possible Western intervention in Ukraine. And that really highlights the danger of not having a counter narrative that allows people to think. I mean, when remember the Skripal poisoning in Salisbury, England, it was really only RT that provided a counter narrative to the immediate claim that you know Russia had waged a chemical attack on NATO soil and had triggered Article Five. So yeah, and we get attacked here as well in the same way. But you have someone on national TV speaking before a national audience. It's the highest rated cable news show, who is talking about. U.S.-sponsored biolabs in Ukraine, which could have produced potentially a bioweapon, and just ripping to shreds the official narrative. It's a major threat, and they don't know what to do with them, uh, except to call for complete censorship. Now, basically, uh, we had another question on, you know, Azov getting asylum. I don't know about as of battalion getting asylum from the US, but we have seen various waves of uh, of um, we've seen there is a history of the CIA providing asylum to Nazi war criminals like Mikola Lebed, who was involved in the extermination of Jews in Nazi controlled Ukraine. He was set up with his own private, printing press called Prologue, which was an anti-communist Ukrainian publication sponsored by the CIA. He ran it out of a flat uh, in the Lower East Side of New York. And you know we know about Operation Paperclip. We know about all these rat lines. You do have a lobby in the US, which is, if you look at the work of Moss Robeson, who's worked for the Gray Zone, contributed to the Gray Zone, Basically, the OUNB network set up 
by Stepan Bandera and these Nazi collaborators repurposed into essentially a Ukrainian diaspora lobby. But they are a Bandera lobby that supports the extremist side of the Ukrainian political spectrum and seeks to manipulate U.S. politics in order to drive a direct U.S. confrontation with what was once the Soviet Union and now is Russia. They were originally the anti-Bolshevik network, and now they have a kind of a series of kind of Ukrainian lobbying organizations. It's very dangerous, uh, and we're going to see, as we saw, you know, with the destabilization of other countries, whether you know. Cuba, El Salvador, a massive migration wave. There has been a huge migration wave to the West since 2014, since the Maidan coup, and we'll see another migration wave. And those lobbies will increase their power by uh, inculcating these new migrants into uh, their, their mentality of direct confrontation, retribution for what has been done to us. The Venezuelan lobby got beefed up massively after Venezuela was sanctioned and economically destabilized these past years, and it helped contribute to Trump's victory in Florida. So now you have, uh, basically, Biden is going to lose Florida. And it's partly be because not only of the demographic shift there, lots of right-wing Colombians who um, hate the Democrats, and now right-wing Venezuelans who hate Maduro, Biden went and negotiated with Maduro over the protest of the Miami Cuban and Venezuelan lobby. So that's off the table. You have growing Ukrainian populations that are more politically mobilized than ever. I've seen them in Washington here. They have huge rallies like almost every weekend in Ohio, in Minnesota, and across swing states, but especially Ohio, Minnesota, I believe Michigan, Actually, if you remember that fateful meeting where John McCain Lindsay, and Lindsey Graham went to meet with a right, like an extremist Ukrainian paramilitary, the IDAR battalion, or was it the Dnipro battalion? And Lindsey Graham called for um, you know, a war the following year. Amy Klobuchar was with them because she has a lot of um, Ukrainian Americans in her district. So that lobby is going to increase its power and increase its pressure. And the Democrats are trying to ride that lobby this is, you know, just my take uh, to victory in 2024 to offset their losses in Florida because they are in swing districts. Um, Aaron's back. I'm back. You know, Max, uh, Ryan Graham just posted a question he asked Jen Psaki today, and it speaks to what we were talking about in terms of whether even if Zelensky wanted to, whether he's empowered to negotiate peace. So I figured we'd watch that and react to it. Let's let's do it. Okay. Let me just bring it up. Yeah, 2017 is the year of offense. That's what Lindsey Graham said in that. Oh, we can watch that. We can watch that clip too. That's a great clip. No, no, I, okay. I, I want to put on pol drunk Pelosi, but. Um, okay, here we go. go here, here is Jen Psaki. You can see this, right? Yeah. Well, let me get that on there. Also requested that the U.S. be more involved in negotiations toward a peaceful resolution to the war. What is the U.S. doing to push those negotiations forward? Well, one of the steps we've taken, a significant one, is to be the largest provider of military and humanitarian and economic assistance in the world to put them in a greater position of strength as they go into these negotiations. We also engage and talk to the Ukrainians on a daily basis 
And the president and this national security team has has uh, rallied the world in being unified in their opposition to the actions of President Putin. So those are the steps we're taking. We also engage uh, oftentimes before and after any conversations that any of these uh, global leaders are having with both Russians and Ukrainians and encourage them to make sure they're engaging with Ukrainians directly. So would Zelensky be empowered by the United States to reach an agreement with Russia and have U.S. sanctions released as a result? Well, he's the leader of Ukraine, so he's empowered to have a negotiation with Russia, and we're here to support those efforts. Again, I'm not going to get ahead of a negotiation, but we are here to support those efforts. We discuss and have conversations with him, with his team on a daily basis. Go ahead, George. Yeah. Go ahead, George. Yeah. Words didn't really say much, but what did you think? Well, it's a good question that he's asking. That's a good question. It's a good question because he's basically the the underlying presumption, which is accurate, is that essentially Zelensky cannot act without U.S. approval or even U.S. orders. And so it's good for that to be pressed to the White House just to make it clear that at least some members of the media know that that's what the dynamic is here uh, instead of just this this image we're getting of Zelensky leading this uh, war effort and the U.S. is just there to you know support him whatever he wants, which is just not the case. The U.S. is deliberately fueling this proxy war and has major leverage over whatever decisions Zelensky makes. Just on that question, do we watch the Duran uh yeah, that's one of the podcasts I would recommend everyone watch for a critical view of what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, daily updates. Um, yeah, I mean, th there was a question I wanted to play for Colonel McGregor that was similar to Ryan's question. And Saki took a different tack and basically said, no, we're not you know, interested in negotiations. We're interested in tanking the Russian economy and uh flooding ukraine with weapons yeah um, so she seemed to kind of backpedal there uh which is really interesting i actually just got a, a a text from doug he wanted he wanted uh to direct our attention to this and actually i wanted to ask him before he left about germany mm. germany's in a really bad situation uh it has a very weak government a very untrained figure, Olaf Schultz at the head, and then all these uh, fanatically anti-Russian Greens controlling the foreign ministry and so on. Uh, breaking news, Germany is warning that an immediate boycott of Russian gas and oil supplies could hurt its own population more than Russia, bringing mass unemployment and poverty. Yes. And what is Schultz doing as well? Uh, $100 billion uh, spent on refurbishing Germany's military something we haven't seen since World War II, a remilitarization of Germany as it plunges into darkness, uh, you know, energy insecurity. That is a terrible situation for Europe and for Germany. And what we've seen with the U.S. boycotting Russian oil in this emotional decision is that the U.S. is sanctioning Europe. The U.S. is sanctioning Western Europe. Is that deliberate? Well, NATO is basically designed to keep Western Europe weak, to keep Russia out, and to keep Europe controlled by the U.S. So is that deliberate? The Europeans have got to see what's happening in Washington as one of the greatest threats to their energy sovereignty. And Russia could actually take Nord Stream 1 offline if they yeah. wanted to. Mm. I mean, they could just send Germany into darkness. It seems like Angela Mer I don't follow German politics too closely, but it seems like Angela Merkel got that, got that Russia is 
an integral part of Europe and a part of Germany's security and economic prosperity. But Schultz, although he declined to join Biden in promising to sanction Nord Stream 2, Schultz seems like he's been a lot weak, a lot easier to cave to the U.S. than even Angela Merkel was, who was obviously yep. very cooperative with the U.S. No, there's a piece in The Atlantic celebrating Schultz as, you know, this great guy and saying, you know, Merkel would have never allowed this to happen, would have never allowed us to, I mean, remilitarization of Germany has some pretty dark undertones. And, yeah. you know, in the liberal Atlantic, they're celebrating it. And they're right, though, that I don't think Merkel would have tolerated it to some degree. She at least understood the benefit of having relations with Russia. I remember when she would meet with Putin, there would be all these phony stories about how Putin brought a dog to frighten Merkel, uh, that they would always try to create this kind of fissure between the two of them in the Western press. Uh, they said, Merkel is terribly afraid of dogs and Putin brought his, his evil black hound in. And then I looked up, uh, I just searched on Google image, uh, Merkel and dogs. And there's all these pictures of her petting dogs at festivals across Germany. It was just completely made up. So they got this clown in Schultz, who, of course, comes from the center left and was he loved the reception he got at Munich, just like Zelensky puffing his chest out, denouncing Russia. And he let it go to his head. And now Germany is is really screwed. And you, you were screwed here in the U.S. And we're totally screwed. We're completely screwed. I, I don't know if people understand how screwed we are. The gas, and as 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 Doug McGregor said, gas prices are a lagging indicator. The Biden administration had been saying it's Fed. The Fed had been saying that inflation was transitory, and now they're going to have to raise rates. Uh, they're going to have to you know pump more money into the economy. Inflation is going to go up. Uh, mortgage price mortgages are going to have to are going to go up. Home buying will become more elusive for anyone who's left in the American middle class. Young people, uh, you will own nothing and be happy. And that doesn't mean you live in a socialist paradise. It means you're just going to be renting for the rest of your life or living in your parents' basement. Food prices are going through the roof. You can already see it. Uh, we're in. We're so we're sanctioning ourselves. And what the Biden administration is banking on is that we're so stupid that our brains have been so infested with neocon worms since Russiagate that we will blame Putin for all of this as though it was absolutely necessary to sanction oil. Our government's job, and the America Firsters are right about this, is to take care of its own people, to take care of the American people, people in this country, not to take care of Ukrainians. That's not their job. And what they're doing is betraying them in order to wage this uh, maniacal was Wilsonian conquest thousands of miles away in order to defeat the uh, shirtless, hort, bareback, horse-riding, conservative uh, evildoer in Putin. And Putin's price hike. Putin's price hike. Where are the anti-war groups to make the connection here between high gas prices, which are affecting the American working class, affecting even the working poor, the Uber drivers, the, the, the frontline workers, and connect that to this war party, to the crazy sanctions that are being applied on Russia, or the sanctions on Venezuela, or the sanctions on Iran. Where are they? They're stuck in boutique, elite left, greeniac delusions. And they, some of them, as we see from like Naomi Klein's tweets, are welcoming this moment. It's a shock doctrine 
to guide and accelerate the transition into a green future, which as we know is not so green because all those electric batteries require tons of mining. So I, I know this for a fact that some of the main anti-war groups are unable to actually uh, complain or, or, or bemoan high gas prices because that would be petro-populism. Yeah, I saw Bill McKibben, who's a leading environmentalist, sort of push this line that instead of from him, like hearing a declaration that we should not be encouraging World War III and should not be using Ukraine as cannon fodder, he instead was talking about what a great opportunity this is to reduce our alliance on fossil fuels. And sure, I mean, I, I support the general idea, but to see this moment as about that and not about stopping NATO expansion, stopping U.S. hegemony, stopping using Ukraine for a suicidal proxy war against Russia that could literally lead to nuclear Armageddon to me is just, I mean, myopic doesn't, doesn't do it justice. I, um, I wanted to play Max that clip you mentioned of Lindsey Graham and John McCain, because I think it, for people who don't know it, it really helps explain how we got here. The, the guiding U S policy, um, that, uh, that, uh, brought us here. So let me, let me share that. Uh, okay, here we go. Do you see it? We'll just we got to add it to the stream. Go ahead. Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. It is time for them to pay a heavier price. I believe you will win. I am convinced you will win. And we will do everything we can to provide you with what you need to win. So that's it. I mean, that's the guiding U.S. policy. That's in late 2016. These U.S. senators, along with the U.S. ambassador, Marie Yabranovich, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing her name. Yabranovich, yeah. Yeah, who was an who was came to be a hero of the impeachment saga. That's been the prevailing Ukrainian, policy. Ukrainian. Yes, yes. That's been the prevailing U.S. policy since uh, since since late 2016 when they were there. And so in that context, what do you expect to happen when U.S. senators are openly saying that Russia needs to pay a heavier price and we're going to use this Ukrainian proxy war to do that? Of course, Russia is going to eventually respond. And this is they've responded in the face of this of this invasion. And it's just amazing how this policy of using Ukraine for that purpose of somehow deeming it normal for U.S. senators to go over to Ukraine and, and, and announce to, to order them and tell them that Russia has to pay a heavier price to pretend that to pretend as if that wouldn't have consequences. I mean, imagine a Russian general going over to Canada where there's an insurgency against uh, the U.S. Uh, or a, a U.S.-backed uh, government and saying we're going to help make the U.S. pay a heavier price. I mean, the, the U.S. would use nuclear weapons in that situation or the U.S. would have invaded a long time ago. So the fact that this has been completely normalized speaks to how uh, powerful Russiagate was because Russia helped Russiagate helped make this happen. Russiagate helped normalize a policy that sees countries like Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia. And that, as you talked about, criminalizes any diplomacy with Russia that could avoid a catastrophic war like this. Yeah, I mean, Lindsey Graham 
you know, he's special in a sense because he's not known as a chicken hawk in Washington, even though he's one of the biggest warmongers. And it was him and McCain who were pushing every war and every proxy war. But, you know, there, if you look into his military experience, I think he was a JAG lawyer. He was like an Air Force lawyer. He wasn't, I don't, I don't think he saw combat. And then McCain, he saw combat from thousands of feet up until he fell to the ground. And then he harbored this lifelong resentment against the enemy. So Lindsey Graham is also one of the top recipients of arm in, arms industry money. Uh, he has bureaucratic in financial incentive to keep pushing these wars. But I also think there's just this psychological delusion that has infested Washington collectively, but specific, but particularly among a certain sect, set, or you could call them sect. And it's spelled out in the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which calls for unipolar dominance as paper that Wolfowitz produced when he was in the Bush One Pentagon. Uh, and it's this notion that Russia, after the Cold War, could be contained and had to be contained. Uh, and that means containment means denying it, number one, denying it a sphere of influence, uh, which would mean its immediate periphery, but also to go enter that sphere of influence and create what George Kennan called the pressure cooker effect uh, to start destabilizing Russia internally by military pressure on its frontiers, putting these dual use missile systems, the Pershing missiles and so on that can reach Moscow and then pushing a color revolution inside Russia. It hasn't worked. 2008 should have been the time when everyone saw in, that this wasn't going to work when Georgia got crushed in South Ossetia when Putin showed he was willing to use military force. He said he was going to do it a year before at the Munich Security Conference. He said, don't push me too far or I will push back. And no one listened. It just made them so upset. They're just so, and, 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 and it, they, it made them double down. 2008 was the same year uh, that the U.S. declared that Ukraine should be part of NATO. And I don't think most Ukrainians wanted to be a part of NATO at that point. So they, they did not know. No, the, there was a former uh, NSC official uh, on the National Security Council who wrote in 2011 that the biggest obstacle to Ukrainians membership to NATO is Ukrainian public opinion itself. And, he, and that's why I think the coup happened in 2014 is because the U.S. and the far right inside Ukraine were trying to accomplish what they could not do, get the Ukrainian public to go along with. So they had to change their government and force it through. And that's why the coup government immediately embraced NATO membership and did all the things that the Ukrainian population was very divided over. Of course, there there is a sizable contingent inside Ukraine that wants to join NATO, that wanted to join the EU. But the country itself, when you consider everybody and not just those who align with U.S. interests, was very, very divided. And that's why polls consistently showed deep division over things like NATO and the EU. And by the way, and this is according to the Washington Post at the time, when Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president, was overthrown with U.S. help, at that time, according to an article in the Washington Post from that month, he was still the most popular political figure in the country, which is saying something because, of course, tens of thousands of people did come out to protest him over his corruption and over uh, his decision not to sign the EU deal. But still, the U.S. that just underscores that U.S. policy has been predicated on ignoring a sizable contingent of Ukraine's population and refusing, refusing to let the country be Definitely. neutral. 
uh, forcing it to make a choice between the Western orbit and Russia, which is an insane policy in such a divided country. The answer in, 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 in a divided country that's on Russia's borders is neutrality. And it's yep. been the U.S. that's been leading the way to prevent that. And that's why Carl Gershman, Gershman, how do you say his name? The yeah, former yeah. head of he declared in uh, the fall of 2013, right before the Maidan, that Ukraine was, quote, the biggest prize, and that if Ukraine could come into the Western orbit, then that would redound to Russia as well, and that Vladimir Putin might find himself on the losing end as well. So basically, he was saying that if Ukraine could be brought into the Western orbit, then we could have maybe a quicker path to regime change in Moscow. Yeah, this was the head of national, the National Endowment for Democracy publishing a call for regime change in the Washington Post, regime change in Moscow not just Ukraine, which ultimately happened and set the stage for, you know, as John Mearsheimer said, it put Ukraine on the primrose path to war. Yeah. Um, what you, your, your point is really important. U S supports Ukraine on the basis of its lack of democracy, it being undemocratic by disenfranchising its ethnic Russian or Russian speaking population. That is why the war raged in the Donbass. That is why people were massacred, Russian speakers, Russian ethnic Russians in Odessa in at the uh, trade union hall. That is why the U.S. openly supported and celebrated the banning of three opposition stations run by Viktor Medvedchuk, the leader of the ethnic Russian opposition party for life. That is why the U.S. supported Medvedchuk's jailing and prosecution and essentially the banning of his party. The U.S. was openly cheering on Zelensky as he did that because the U.S. did not want a democratic Ukraine because we have to remember the Maidan so-called revolution of dignity was not supported by a majority of Ukrainians and it was designed to overthrow a democratically elected, albeit very corrupt, president, Viktor Yanukovych. A plurality supported it, not a majority. And so the U.S. wants a country that's very much like its own, an oligarchy, not a democracy, infested with NGOs and a kind of uh, uh, corrupt bureaucracy. Now we turn to the U.S. I, I got to run now, but I just um, think we're, we're at a really pivotal point in the U.S. where we're seeing opposition to this whole program from people like Doug McGregor, who do kind of represent the political right. Uh, the America First coalition or, or contingent in Congress has been more outspoken about the U.S. escalating in Congress than people like Ro Khanna, which sure. is why when I saw Ro Khanna, I just happened to be on Capitol Hill and I'm always prepared at times like this to do interviews. I, 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 I saw him go into a cafe and I said, you know, he needs to... To, to speak out against the U.S. escalating because he ran on that kind of platform. So I waited for him. He came out and I politely asked him some questions to that effect. He said to me something that I thought only right-wingers during the first Bush term would say, freedom isn't free. This is about freedom and America's the best country in the world and we got to send in the Stinger missiles. This was the guy who was in 2018 pushing the ban on weapons to Azov, to the That's Azov right. battalion, doing so openly. Uh, tweeting about how Azov was a neo-Nazi battalion incorporated into the Ukrainian military. He put the orange revolution, the color revolution in quotes, like in scare quotes, like he was, he was mocking the whole thing. And now 
He's joined the war party, as have so many of the other progressives. You AOC wearing her, you know, Ukraine uh, badge during the State of the Union. And I guess the, there was like a paperclip behind it for Operation Paperclip. I don't know. But, you know, Ilhan Omar has been sort of a very muted and as, as one of the few critics, her and Cori Bush are probably two of the only members of the squad who've put up any resistance to this. But then you have the whole America First Coalition who are saying, and Tucker Carlson, and all these figures who are saying, this is not our fight. And they're being called the Putin wing of the GOP in Washington. They're frightened of them. And they're also frightened of them because the Democrats are going to get taken to the woodshed in the midterms. And you're going to see a rise of populism in the Republican Party. There's no way I can see the Democrats holding the White House with Biden and Kamala Harris in there. Uh, Kamala Harris, you know, she makes she makes like Sarah Palin look like Hannah Arendt. I mean, it's ridiculous. So Max, by the way, so, what did Ro Khanna do after you challenged him in that interview, which is up at thegrayzone.com? Ro Khanna tweeted out this McCarthyite smear of you basically saying you were parroting uh, RT talking points, which no, you then that deleted. I would, he said basically that I was RT. You were RT, yeah. And which he then deleted, but he never apologized for, and he still should if he has any remorse. I don't care if he left. apologizes. I don't want I don't accept his apology anyway. I just wanted to, I'm I'm just here to lift the mask. Um, you know, there's been a mask mandate on progressives in Congress. They've been wearing a phony, virtuous mask of being anti-war and anti-capitalist and all the stuff they say. And I'm I'm a, I'm against the progressive mask mandate. And that's that's what had to happen. Um, and then you see like also phony Republicans like Maria Elvira Salazar getting exposed. She's she's always clamoring for war and she didn't even know what a no-fly zone was. So I think we're we're seeing a real serious political transition in the US. And it's really because neoliberalism didn't work out for the base, the real base of the Republican Party that had always been duped by wedge issues like abortion and gay marriage and so on. They're still somewhat being duped and you know, but you're 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 seeing just anti-establishment rage. And I think that is one of the few things that will contribute to a kind of uh, weakening of the liberal interventionist and neoconservative forces in Washington. At least it's going to set the stage for another confrontation like the kind we saw during the Trump era when Trump effectively got rolled with the appointment of John Bolton. So his appointment of John Bolton. His appointment of John Bolton, yeah. Which speaks to McGregor's point that, you know, or he, as he said today, and it's amazing to hear a former Trump senior official say this, that uh, Trump was constantly undermined by the people he appointed. Yeah, because then Trump was just, she saw John Bolton on Fox and thought he was a good guy. And, you know, he defended Trump sometimes. And so he, Trump also said, like, I liked having him in negotiations with, you know, North Korea or, any other any other country because there was the threat of uh, World War III sitting across the room from them, which is just idiotic because Bolton's main war was against Trump and for rehabilitating his own image in Washington. So yeah, that was on Trump. But anyway, I see another confrontation coming in Washington and it is really unfortunate that there there, there is the left in the U.S. has been so hollowed out that they're not actually able to pose any threat to the war party in the State Department and in Congress, and that they are part of it in some ways. 
All right. Well, listen, this has been a great chat. Thanks to everybody who has tuned in. This was a possibly a record for us, Max, in terms of views over 5,500, I think, have been watching live, which is great. We really appreciate everyone's support. Um, any final words for us, Max? No, this, yeah, this is great. Uh, we're we're going to just keep trying to do more live streams like this. The chat, the participation is enormous and we've had continuously the, our highest um, number of views. And what we're going to keep trying to do is bring on people who bring a really informed perspective um, and don't see these issues of war and peace as abstract because they have, you know, they've been on the ground either as reporters or as participants in war. And please, again, a reminder to everyone, hit the like button if you are so inclined. That helps us out, helps us beat the algorithmic suppression. And uh, stay tuned. Peace. Bye, everybody.